let me ask you this. When was the last time you cooked spaghetti for yourself? How long did it take? Let's see, maybe 20 minutes to get the sauce together and boil the noodles? Okay, have you ever grown tomatoes? Or harvested wheat? Or, for that matter, have you ever raised and slaughtered livestock? Most of us haven't. That pot spaghetti didn't take 20 minutes to make. It took months, or maybe even years. This separation we have from our food chain is a fairly modern thing. We go to the grocery store, we find a jar of sauce and a box of noodles, we take it home, and then 20 minutes later, voila, we have spaghetti. That wasn't always the case. Historically, the majority of people spent most of their time figuring out how they were going to eat. But technology and division of labor pushed us further and further from our food. Untextbook producer Grace Davis is interested in how food has shaped our society. Food history can really help us understand how we have been divided by class, which really has a very interesting connection to food and power dynamics and the economics of food and many other things that are equally important. My fascination with food history led me to Rachel Loudon, a food historian. I remember seeing this quote, nothing proclaims your equality more than eating the same as other people. Nothing shows your independence more than being able to choose what you eat. On this episode of Untextbook, Grace interviews food historian Rachel Loudon about her book, Cuisine and Empire, Cooking in World History. They talk about the invisible labor it takes to turn crops into food and about how industrialized food production might be a force for good. I'm Gabe Hostin. This is Untextbook. More after the break. Untextbooked. Okay, so you grew up on a farm in southwest England, and since then you've lived in many, many different places. Could you talk about your experience growing up on a farm and how that impacted your take on food history? Yes, I'd be happy to. You may have heard of Stonehenge, the big stone circle in England. Our farm was just a mile or two from Stonehenge. And so I had this sense growing up of the huge span of human history. We lived in the country on this farm. We grew a lot of wheat and we raised a lot of dairy cows and some beef cattle. And I think what that gave me was... Uh, a good sense of the hard work that goes into growing food or raising animals. That was really useful because for most people through most of history, the farm world was the world they lived in. You know, nine out of 10 people lived on uh, farms, whether they were small or large. Now, only one in a hundred lives on a farm. So for many people, talking about a farm is now largely kind of ideas that you get from nursery rhymes and advertising and what have you. It's not direct experience. So I was very, I think I was very lucky to have that direct experience. And 
when I started writing on food history, what I realized was that there are, in fact, lots and lots and lots of histories of farming. What hasn't had so much attention is what happens when you get the food off the farm. So I decided to write about that, how we take our crops and our animals and make them into food. Your book, Cuisine and Empire, and so much of your work is about what forms a cuisine, how do cuisines get made. There's so much global interaction and so many factors that go into creating a cuisine. How would you define a cuisine? If you read any history, uh, any world history, people talk about the shift to farming They will say, oh, yes, before farming, you know, people had relative leisure. But with farming, there was all this work to do. It was such hard work to plow the ground and harvest the crops and herd the animals. And you don't hear anything about what happened afterwards. But it was turning those crops and those animals into something we could actually put in our mouths was really, really time-consuming and difficult. We're the only animal that does that. Most animals just eat what's there. You know, a lion will kill its prey and eat it. A cow will walk across the pasture and eat it. We don't. We turn it into food. And that takes me to cuisine. Why do I talk about cuisine? Cuisine, unfortunately, is a French word. Um, So it has a kind of slightly snobby feel to it. Um, I do not use cuisine to mean fancy cuisine or high cuisine. I use cuisine simply to mean a style of cooking, whether it's a very simple cooking, which I call humble cooking, or humble cuisine, or whether it is one of the fancy ones, which I will call high cuisine. Through most of history, people thought that the kind of food that rich people or uh, people, the aristocracy and the monarchy needed was different from the food that ordinary people needed. Poor people, ordinary people, you and me, could get by on Um, turnips and carrots and onions, and we could get by without most meat, and we certainly didn't need sugar or anything like that. Whereas the well-to-do had more delicate digestive systems, they were more refined, and so they needed more refined food. They needed white bread, they needed meat, they needed meat. They needed delicate vegetables like green peas and fresh fruit, unlike, you know, not just sort of lumpy old turnips and things like that. Um, This means that the big division through most of history is between those who can get out of cooking, who do not have to cook, and those who have to cook. And here I'm using it not just for heating things on a fire, but for this whole process of turning our raw materials into food. 
So that the sort of original form of power is how can I get into a position where I am a ruler, a king or a queen or a prince or somebody of that kind who has other people cooking for them? That's so fascinating how you were saying that cooking and styles of cooking and the fact that it's so human means that it comes with all the other problems of being human. Um, One thing being the relationship between food and power, which is so fascinating. Can you give some other examples in which people in power have used food and cuisine as a way to maintain some sort of status quo? I Let me get it, it this way, with first of all an observation and then a story. The observation is that we live in the most staggeringly extraordinary moment in the history of food. We have no sense in modern America of just the scarcity of food through most of history, how little there was to go around, how hard it was to put food on the table. So that's the observation. We have to get, we have to imagine a very different world. And again, I've been so lucky in my life to be plunged into situations where I had to recognize that. When I lived in Mexico, I had a young woman about your age who came in and helped me in the house. Um, Obviously, I paid her. Um, she, She worked for me. And her name was Margarita. And it was very interesting talking to Margarita about her growing up. She had grown up on a small farm in Mexico, and her father and her brothers had planted corn every year, and they grew enough corn for their family of five. They had a little bit over that they could take to market so that they could get a bit of money, but there really wasn't very much over. What Margarita told me was that when she was 12 years old, her mother had handed her a long stone shaped like a rolling pin and said, Margarita, from now on, you are going to grind the corn for dinner. What did this mean? To grind enough corn to make tortillas for one person for one day takes about an hour. So at the age of 12, Margarita was spending four or five hours a day kneeling on the earth in front of this stone, going push, 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 push. And I mean, she also had to go and get the water to cook the maize because there was no running water. And she had to go and gather the firewood to make a fire to cook the tortillas on, and she, when she ground it all, she had to shape and cook all the tortillas. So you're talking, you know, <laughs> it's a day's work. That's a lot of work. And so the power of food and the growth of a society with radically different classes of people comes from 
this combination of the scarcity of farm products and the hard work needed to turn them into food, because that meant only the privileged few could do what most of us do and, you know, um, be undergraduates or university teachers instead of kneeling at a grindstone. Oh, and by the way, let me tell you, there's a happy ending to the Margarita story. She managed to go to town and take a job, and she went through high school in the evenings while she was working during the day. It took her quite a while, but she graduated from high school, and she got a job as a receptionist in a dentist's office, and she didn't have to grind anymore. That's so interesting that a way we can make this distinction between who's in power and who is not is between who has to cook and who doesn't have to cook. In other words, who has people cooking for them. There's this one quote in Cuisine and Empire that I found really interesting, and I was wondering if you could explain it a bit. It's from the German sociologist Werner Sombart, and the quotation is, luxury, not necessity, has been an engine of change. What does it mean exactly? You know, the phrase necessity is the mother of invention is one that gets kicked around all the time. The trouble is that if you are in a position like Margarita, experimenting with food or with anything else, but we're just going to talk about food now, um, means that you have to be able to waste things. If you want to try out a completely new cake, and when I say that, I don't mean just a new recipe for a cake, but you want to say, oh, I've got a great idea. Supposing we, instead of creaming the butter and sugar first, you know, we started with the flour and did it all in a different order. That might work and it might not. But if it doesn't work, you've got to throw it away. You're not going to throw things away if you are living right at the edge. The people like Margarita are not going to say, oh, today, I think there's a better way to make tortillas. I'm not going to cook the maize first and then grind it. I'm going to grind it first and then cook it and see if that works. They might lose all the food for the day. That, that's not something they want to risk. Uh, And this is not lack of imagination. It's not lack of interest. It's not in any way a criticism. It's just to say that the people who have the surplus where they can say, oh, let's try something completely different, tend to be the people who are the wealthier people in society. Right. That's so fascinating that this, the concept of waste is such a luxury. Yes, and what's happened over history is most of the improvements in food preparation, in cooking, have come by the changing out of human energy for non-human energy. So if you want to make the kind of grinding that Margarita did more efficient or release her from doing that grinding, you have to have somehow to hitch that grindstone up to 
perhaps an animal, perhaps a water power like a water mill, perhaps an electric current. Those kinds of extra power are not usually available to the very poor. So um, it's not just that you don't want waste, but that experimenting usually means using either extra power or new and rare ingredients. And so there are many reasons why um, most of the innovations have come in high up in the social scale rather than low down. And as I said, that has nothing to do with the intelligence or interest or energy of the people who are poorer. It's just to do with the structure of what it takes to innovate. That reminds me of what you were saying earlier about how the process of what happens after you take the crops from the farm is even more time-consuming than farming itself. And very often nowadays we hear this phrase, farm to table, which can be very misleading because there are just so many factors. And one thing I think would be really helpful to just define for the audience. Um, what do you understand to be the definition of food equality and the definition of food justice? Um, I want to back up a bit. The very fact that we're talking about this is historically novel. Now, when I say historically novel, I work on a thousand year time scale. But if you think of my book, which goes back 20,000 years, it's only in the last 200 that people have even thought that food justice was an important thing to consider. It's not that there was once food justice and we lost it and we've got to get it back. One of the great changes was the belief that everybody should have access to decent basic food. And this comes in particularly in the United States. Consider Thanksgiving. If you think of, you know, the great ideal meals through most of history, they are the fancy meals, the food of the monarch, roast beef and sausages, as much as you wanted, rich food. And so in the 19th century, there was a debate about what should be the proper meal for the American Republic. Should it be, like all those European countries, the kind of food that uh, diplomats and aristocrats ate, fine French food? Or should it be an American Republican food that everybody could eat? And women in particular argued that it should be the latter. It should be a home-cooked meal of things that was plentiful and tasty, but that everybody could afford. And that's the Thanksgiving dinner. What are the vegetables at Thanksgiving dinner? They're not asparagus and peas. They're sweet potatoes, onions, and canned green beans. The dressing is just bread. Even the turkey is not an expensive bird. The desserts are basic, ordinary American pies, not fancy mousses and what have you. 
And this was a deliberate political decision on the part of the United States that its national meal would be a home-cooked meal that essentially all Americans could share in, and they do. People will go to huge amounts of trouble, as you know, to go home for Thanksgiving for a family home-cooked, ample, affordable meal. It's the only place in the world that has that kind of thing. Now, of course, citizens didn't include lots of people for a long time. It didn't include African Americans. It often didn't include other migrants. It didn't include women. So this was not perfect. So how I would define food justice was that everybody in society should have access to decent food, to food that is plentiful that is reasonably tasty, that is affordable, which means industrialized, it has to be accessible, which means it has to be um, transported and available in all neighborhoods. And all that means large scale. Yeah, it's so interesting how it's very easy to sort of idealize the farmer's market or the small farm or the kind, the type of farm that you grew up on, for instance. Um, you take the position that industrialized food has led to greater food equality. And you talk about this concept of romanticizing the past as being completely pure and natural when it comes to food, when in fact, you say most of us would be working all day long or even starving. So could you talk about the two different sides of this argument in terms of how industrialization has led to greater access or greater food equality? Sure. Let me start with the argument for uh, fresh, natural, uh, pre-industrial food. I can see that the reason why, uh, for example, so many of my students over the years have been interested in food justice and they go to the farmer's market, they want uh, small crop, uh, small batch foods, they want artisanal bakeries, and they believe the way to bring social justice to everybody is to make community gardens uh, available to everybody, to have everybody do home cooking, um, because this is what they've been brought up to believe. Um, I think it's much more complicated than that. If you're a working person and you have to grow your own food in a community garden, that's an extra set of hours each week to do it. I remember a friend of mine who came from England where there were very few restaurants and I said to her, and she had four children, and I said to her once, Anne, how do you manage, she was a single mother by this stage, how do you manage running a full-time job and having four children? And she said, you know, what we have in America is McDonald's. And I don't want my children to go to McDonald's every night. But if I am really exhausted one night, I can take my children from McDonald's for not much more than it costs me to cook at home. 
and it saves my life. Um, so that's why I say our experience of food now in the United States is so extraordinary. Nobody, you know, everybody takes it for granted that if they don't feel like cooking, you know, they can order a pizza or go to McDonald's or go to somewhere fancier, perhaps if they've got the money. But even, even poor people can, you know, go to McDonald's or a, get a pizza. Nutritionists look at this and they say, oh, this is the nutrition transition is their technical word for it. We have gone from a carbohydrate diet to one rich in meat and fat and sugar. And that's a disaster because people are getting sick from it. The other problem it has is that this is putting huge pressure on the world food supply. If suddenly everybody in China is eating a lot more meat, if everybody in Mexico is eating, drinking a lot more Coca-Cola, if everybody in Algeria has access to pastries that are rich in, in butter, we've got to up production for this. And so environmentalists worry that this nutrition transition or the shift, as I would call it, to middling cuisines is putting pressure on the environment by having to have much more intensive farming. What do you say? We've got all these people on earth. Politically, the only way we can have something like equality, something like access for everybody to the same kind of diet is either to go along with middling cuisines or to retreat to humble cuisines. I worry about retreating to humble cuisines because there'll always be the people who want the high cuisines and there'll be everybody else stuck working like crazy to just get enough. So I think, you know, middling cuisines is a great step forward in terms of uh, human progress, of everybody having the dignity of being able to eat the same kind of thing. But it's such a rapid change having happened in just a generation or two that it's not going to be solved overnight, these health and environmental problems, because people have to start thinking about food in a whole new way. Rachel Loudon is the author of Cuisine and Empire, as well as several other books. So Rachel, where can people find you online? They can find me on my blog, which is rachelloudon.com. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Rachel Loudon is a senior research fellow at the University of Texas at Austin. Grace Davis is a high school junior at the Brearley School in New York City, and she produced this episode. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton, who are a senior and recent graduate of Walnut Hill School for the Arts in Massachusetts. Untextbooked is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Antman. Fernand Rain is our big boss. Our website is untextbook.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Untextbooked. 
We are already thinking about the future. We have so many more topics we want to explore. We want Untextbook to grow and be as good as it can be. And you can help us do that. Go to untextbook.com and click support. Untextbook is a project of God history, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.